electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Scott Wapner. This make or break hour begins with stocks falling, bond yields jumping, investors worried about more rate hikes after strong ADP jobs and ISM services data this morning, and some hawkish Fed speak. Here is your scorecard with 60 minutes left to go in the session. You see the Dow down just about 1%, a uh, good deal up off the lows. The S&P 500 has almost halved its, uh, its maximum drop. For the day, it's down uh, almost three quarters of 1%. The Russell 2000, again, the underperformer. A little bit of traction in the NASDAQ also had its losses from earlier. The two-year Treasury yield did hit a 16-year high earlier, although the yield has moderated throughout the day. It was up at 510, now down toward 5%. That all brings us to our talk of the tape and whether tomorrow's jobs report will seal the fate for more Fed rate hikes this year and what it all might mean for markets. Let's ask Tony Pasquarello of Goldman Sachs. He joins me here at Post 9. Tony, good to see you. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. So uh, stock market unable to fully ignore or set aside this move in yield. It's coming with better economic numbers. And I guess the story for the year so far is the economy has held up better than expected. Lots of pessimism has kind of been burned off uh, as stocks went higher. Where does that leave us in your mind right now? You nailed it. A very strong run of data punctuated by a blowout ADP number today. And I think it introduces this question into the market. Can stocks maintain this almost immunity that we've enjoyed this year as distinct from last year? to higher interest rates. I think it's mostly the move higher in rates has mostly come from a good place, strong data. Uh, we're contemplating might the Fed sneak in 25 basis points here or there, September, November. Very different from the regime last year, 5% in a straight line, including four blasts of 75 basis points. I also think kind of an interesting reveal today, mega cap tech stocks down less than 1%, our basket of non-profitable tech stocks down 4%. And so I do think there's also this kind of question of what is long duration, what is not. I think we would argue the very top of the index is not necessarily long duration, making the money today, making the margins today. Yeah, so the, the very top mega cap growth stocks that have been relatively bulletproof, um, it's, it seems as if it's just the reliability of the profit streams that the market is paying up for right here. You do see some wear and tear, though, uh, underneath things like banks down another couple of percent. Uh, some of the more cyclical groups, we mentioned small caps. So does it feel as if it's a tenuous situation or is it just kind of routine pullback? We had a good run. I think about it this way. If we go back two months to the beginning of May, the U.S. two-year note yields up 100 basis points since then. Mm -hmm. NASDAQ's up 15%. So again, that's, I think, kind of the correlation shift that we've enjoyed this year, again, in contrast to last year. I think if we look at U.S. mega cap tech companies, it's the story we know. It's the best balance sheets in the world, still generating enormous free cash flow, returning that free cash flow. And then you introduced, of course, in the past couple of months, the right tail in the form of, of AI. So a big reveal coming through the sequence of earnings, Q2 earnings in the next yep. three or four weeks. So we're going to learn a lot. But I'd say on net, 
for anyone who's been around to remember the late 90s, which you and I both sure. do, when the NASDAQ freight trains are running full steam ahead, you really don't want to step in front of them too early. No, exactly. I mean, especially when you consider, uh, and you know, you'd never want to say that this is an underappreciated part of the market or people don't get what, all that you just laid out there, uh, except a lot of these stocks aren't back to where they were a year and a half ago. And the overall NASDAQ 100 is not as expensive even as it was a year and a half ago on earnings. So I guess you have to look at both sides there. I wonder how it feels to you in terms of the investor's posture at this point, because you were able to say for much of this year, look, the consensus is very skeptical, underinvested, doesn't own enough uh, in the way of equity exposure. Has that been normalized at this point? It has. So if we were having this conversation just, say, two months ago, I would say the professional trading community who we know best have fairly low levels of exposure. I think as we sit here today, that has changed. I think people have more skin in the game today. We can see that in our prime brokerage data. We can see that in CFTC data on S&P futures. We can see that in the options market, call versus put skew. We can see that in sentiment measures. I also think the retail army, if you will, is a little bit more engaged today versus where they were earlier in the year. Our basket of meme stocks is up over 60% on the year. So I do think people are more engaged. If I were to try to put goalposts on it, on say a down 10 to up 10 scale, at the peak of the market in 2021, that was a plus 10. Mm-hmm. Coming into this year after a very long year last year, of course, minus five. I put current positioning at a plus five. Okay. So uh, sort of halfway between neutral and way over our skis, I guess, on that level. How do things look in terms of the setup just into tomorrow's number? In terms of does this market crave more confirmation that the economy is strong as long as this inflation is still in place? Uh, or are we going to be sensitive to every wiggle in yields? I think there's an element of turbulence that you felt today. So when twos breached 5%, when 10-year note yields breached 4%, again, you felt a pinch in the market you hadn't felt in a long time. I still think in the end, the biggest story of the year, and part of the reason stocks have performed so well this year, is the durability of the U.S. economy. And I think that story starts and ends with the U.S. labor market. We've added 1.6 million jobs. You know, if ADP is mostly correct, that number will be 2 million after tomorrow. Uh, nominal GDP growth in the first half of this year, north of five, call it five and a half percent. So that's been a bulwark for stocks all year, alongside, of course, the mega cap tech stocks that we mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think in the end, if you ask the market, would you prefer a stronger labor market or a weaker labor market? I think it's shown its hand. It would gladly take medium term a stronger labor market. Does it feel to you in terms of the way clients are thinking about things that the soft landing scenario or the look, there's a recession somewhere out there, but we don't have to worry about it yet. That position has now been fully embraced. Well, I think if we use the interest rate strip as a as a signal, mm-hmm. it's just pushed it further out. In other words, we've taken back all the implied cuts that were in the curve for later this year. We've taken actually all the implied cuts for the first half of next year. So the bond market is basically saying the Fed's not doing anything probably until the middle of next year, and then it may need to cut 100 in the back end of 2024. I think the equity markets essentially mirrored that as well. Mm -hmm. Meaning that that's where the economic downturn risk sits, somewhere out in the middle of next year? That's correct. Gotcha. That's correct. Um, And then in terms of, I mean, like seasonals are only friendly for another couple of weeks. I'm just sort of wondering if we're at a point here where, you know, the consensus seemed to be weak first half of 23, strength in the second half, if we're going to have to work off a little bit of what we built up in the first half. So it has been a year where very little's gone as expected, full of surprises. I don't know many people expected NASDAQ to be off to its best start on record. I certainly didn't. Uh, and again, part of that story has been thanks to the labor market, and part of it's been to the very top of the index, eye-popping returns in megacap tech. I think if we kind of run the forward-looking analysis today with consideration for economic growth, 
earnings growth, valuation, and money flow, I think the market's taking a lot of credit for the good news that we have in hand. And so could we have a period of consolidation over the course of summer, setting up for maybe a year-end rally? That would be the customary pattern, and I think that kind of fits with the way we're looking at things. Tony, great to catch up with you. Thanks, Thanks so Mike. much. Appreciate the time. All right, let's send it over to Steve Leisman for more on today's data and tomorrow's job report. Hi, uh, Steve. How you doing? Hey, Mike, it was a double-take number for me. We had the uh, strong jobs and service sector data together with Hawkish Fed Talk prompting the street to rethink the outlook for rate hikes, pushing down stocks and obviously raising bond yields, as you've been talking about. This was the double take number. This ADP private sector, you can see the estimate was 220, came in at more than double the estimate, confirming the high frequency data that we've been reporting on this week suggests that who knows what the number is going to be, but a strong job support looks to be on tap. The service sector and educational services, they drove the hiring inside that number as well as leisure and hospitality. Jobless claims were higher, but not much increase so far in the continuing claims number, remaining under 1.8. Uh, that suggests those who lose work and apply for claims, they're pretty quickly finding work again. And the ISM service index beating expectations, more importantly, that employment index inside it also showing growth as well. All of this raising questions. Is that 249? Number that the Wall Street estimate average for the jobs report tomorrow, could it be on the weak side? And should the market be thinking more like the Fed does about two more hikes this year? Well, they are thinking a little bit more about it today. July at 89 percent. That's for the first hike. And then September, that number is probably 10 points higher, as is the November probability for the second hike. Not quite at 50 percent, but they're thinking hard about whether or not the Fed comes in with a second hike this year. Meanwhile, New Dallas Fed President Lori Logan, she made some hawkish remarks this morning, saying the Fed ought to hike again, dismissing factors like the lagged effects of prior rate hikes, tightening bank credit standards. Some thought that might have stayed the Fed's hands. Doesn't look to be the case, at least for Lori Logan, a voter this year. We're going to have Austin Goolsby on, Chicago Fed President, exclusively tomorrow at 1030, or sorry, 1130. And we're going to put all of these questions to him, Mr. Mike. All right, Steve. Now, what can we say at this point about the market sense. Now, coming into this period, the market had the sense of, hey, you know, we can breathe a little bit easier about the way the Fed views the labor market. They don't seem to be really targeting some big jump in unemployment to get the job done on inflation. Does it change right here with this run of hot numbers? We got the jolts data today. I guess you could read that uh, sort of in either direction. But I guess what are the stakes for tomorrow's number in terms of causing a rethink for the, the whole path for the Fed? Well, we just had a discussion on the uh, 2.30 uh, CNBC news call about what a Goldilocks number is and what the opposite of Goldilocks is. So let me lay out Goldilocks, a number that is somewhere in the 200s. That'd be a good number, plus or minus a tenth or two on the unemployment rate. The work week may be uh, lengthening out a little bit and average hourly wages being in the zero, three or lower range. That would be fine. And I think, Mike, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this. The market is more or less okay with two more hikes. I think that's yeah. the upper end of tolerance for the current level of the market. It's when we start talking about the possibility of, say, a third hike or a fourth hike, getting up into the sixes, that's where the market might really be concerned. Obviously, the 5% yield on the two-year is a challenge for equities uh, because you can put your money there for two years, earn 5% with little risk. Uh, that's an increasing challenge to it. So the other side of that is if we hit that 400 number, a big boost in wages, a decline participation rate, those are the sorts of things that would, you're right in, in your question, and I like the question because it says strong jobs is not enough to really concern the Fed. The Fed has no measure or me metric when it comes to what it wants in jobs. What it wants is inflation to come down. It believes that a weaker 
or a, a, a less tight job market is a means to that end, but it itself is not the end. Watch for, in the jobs report, the impact or the potential impact on inflation, not the level itself. Yeah, uh, that, I think that's the correct read, how the market is oh, it's probably okay at this point with two more hikes. After all, it's small moves spread apart. We're talking about 50 basis points between now and Halloween, uh, basically. So maybe that's palatable anymore. Might be uh, a little tougher, Steve. Thanks very much. We'll uh, sure. certainly talk to you tomorrow. Let's bring in Ayako Yashioka of Wealth Enhancement Group, as well as Peter Cicchini of Exonic to talk more about this. Aya, um, how would you feel about the way the market is postured ahead of tomorrow's number. Uh, now, in, on the one hand, the market maybe was an excuse to pull back, looking for an excuse to pull back on almost anything. On the other, you know, the, the yields have, have gotten up into the zone that, that has become uncomfortable for stocks a couple of times in the last couple of years. Yes. Uh, hi, Mike. Thanks again for having me. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this a couple of times in that, you know, the current interest rate environment, you know, yields going higher, uh, valuations being relatively elevated, at least in the near term. Um, and then, you know, economic data that's been relatively resilient, um, but, you know, expectations are for a continued slowdown, um, maybe at a pace that's not as bad as everybody initially thought. But that combination um, isn't typically the combination that pushes markets higher. So we expect at least a little bit of a pullback, especially as we head into earnings season. You know, Peter, um, that's certainly very true that that combination is not typically what would be a bullish formula for stocks. But there's been a lot that is atypical, isn't there, about this current cycle, or at least it's an elongated process. I know you've been kind of looking for the economy to weaken. Here we are, I think, trying to contend with data that say, okay, we might be heating up again on the economy. What's your read? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, the June numbers were strong. That ADP print, if it's not revised, was unequivocally strong. Payrolls will obviously tell more of a story tomorrow. Um, I do think the trend, though, has been for weaker. PMIs have been, been weakening. ISM has been weakening. The trend has clearly been weaker there. Um, initial claims, which bottomed out around 180,000, um, hit about 265. Um, they were a little bit stronger this morning, uh, meaning fewer claims. But I think the trend is a little bit weaker. People get carried away. We have recency bias relative to the more recent prints. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, this long and variable lag that Jerome Powell even admitted is even longer and more variable than normal um, will eventually manifest. We, we had an unprecedented stimulus coming into this. And I believe that stimulus and the pent-up savings have prolonged the cycle a little bit. You know, defaults are rising, Mike, especially in weaker middle market companies. We can see all the telltale signs. And never have we not had a recession with the yield curve this inverted and with lending standards this tight, going back to 1964. If you boil that all down, Pete, does that mean that, you know, this is a huge buying opportunity for, for treasuries because of the, the, the backup in yields we've seen? Yeah, you know, we are we are contemplating that, right? This might be the time to receive in swaps. Um, the instance in which it would not be, Mike, I think would be if the Fed were to, quote unquote, lose control. We don't think that that's going to be the case. But yes, over the next six months or so, there will be a point in time where becoming bullish uh, of the long end will make sense uh, if, in fact, our economic forecasts are anywhere near correct. And I, uh, on a practical level, uh, what areas of, of the market would you feel comfortable with in terms of 
uh, fresh money, putting it in there, uh, given the environment, doesn't necessarily, to you, look like uh, it's, a, it's a necessarily attractive uh, combination. Sure. So as Peter said, we like fixed, fixed income as well. But if you want to stick to the equity markets, we do see some pockets of value. You know, healthcare hasn't done as well this year as, as much as tech has. And we think industrials also offer some good value. And then lastly, small caps have really sort of been left for, for dead. And the differential between small cap valuations and large cap valuations has, has widened to um, an area that we feel that small caps could be attractive going forward. It, they're, they're much more sensitive to sort of the higher interest rates and, um, you know, economic sensitivity is high. But we think that over the long term, they can sort of come back to some sort of outperformance relative to large caps. Peter, you mentioned defaults have been ticking higher in some of the more stressed areas uh, in, in the corporate uh, borrowing area. And I guess, you know, you would look at the benchmarks and say, Credit markets have been pretty firm. The spreads have not really blown out. That's been part of the bull case. Is there an explanation for that to have, or is it, again, just a matter of, you know, time has to work, uh, work its way through? Yeah, well, look, I, you know, we, we've been a little bit, you know, um, off on the timing. This has taken, you know, kind of, kind of three to six months longer than I thought it would. But there's always that sort of lull where spreads widen and then they stabilize. And what it really takes is a pickup in defaults to widen spreads out to their recession wides of whatever, if we talk about CDX high yield, 800 to 1,000 basis points. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty typical. I'm not saying anything that's atypical of a cycle that happens every 10 to 12 years. It's, again, a much longer cycle period this time around. So I, I do think that the, the, the credit markets are painting a mixed picture because clearly spreads are not tight in high yield, but they're also not quite wide. We would expect, again, capitulation to come around 1,000 thousand basis points or so on high yield spreads. And that would probably correspond to default rates somewhere between eight and 10 percent. And that's again, that's not atypical. And it's just taking a little bit longer because of the unprecedented stimulus that has has, you know, solidified both consumer and corporate balance sheets. I, uh, if you're a little bit cautious about exactly what uh, the markets are offering you right here, th some of that view is reflected in the Fed minutes that were released yesterday. This idea that there are vulnerabilities in the economy. Uh, do you think the Fed is either in the process of going too far with rate hikes or already has or or do they have to keep, uh, you know, keep cinching tighter while inflation remains here? I think they have to keep uh, inching a little bit more. You know, fighting inflation is their number one goal. And when the labor market continues to stay tight, um, if wage inflation continues to contribute to the overall inflation picture, they're going to have to continue to raise rates. All right. Well, they seem on, uh, on course to do that at least once more. Aya, Peter, thanks very much. Good to speak with you today. Let's get to our Twitter question of the day. We want to know, what do investors want to see in tomorrow's payroll number? Want it to beat expectations, a downside surprise, or should jobs be in line with estimates to satisfy the markets? Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter to vote. We'll share the results later in the hour. We're just getting started. Up next, why one top technician says one of the worst performing sectors could be set up to outperform this year. He will make his case. And later, a can't-miss interview, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy on exclusively on overtime, that's uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange, Dow down 354. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canvas AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. Saving, researching, investing. Now you can take those investments to the next level with Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. I have an investment account with Schwab and a 401k with Fidelity, and I use Yahoo Finance to consolidate them so it's incredibly easy to manage. They've been helping great investors like you for over 25 years. So whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking to level up, Yahoo Finance can simplify things, putting all your tools and data in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a 360-degree look at the financial news cycle, from breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, and customizable charts. They've got you covered. You can see all of your 401k and other investments by securely linking your brokerage accounts. Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you see your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective helps smart investors become even better. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com, that's YahooFinance.com. Let's get a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Christina Parsonevelos is here with that. Hey, Christina. Hi, Mike. Well, shares of buy now, pay later provider Affirm are plunging almost about 14 percent on a downgrade from Piper Sandler. Actually, that's a little bit better, about 12 and a half percent. But what the analysts are saying is that the loans on Affirm's balance sheet continue to grow and they expect operating margins to be pressured by high interest rates. But they do maintain their price target of 11 bucks a share, which is still lower than the trading price right now of 13 dollars. Green goddess. That's my go-to sweet green salad. Shares are jumping right now, not because I like the salad, but they're jumping about 15% after Bank of America upgraded the stock to buy, citing growing foot traffic. Even with the slower-than-expected return to the office, the analyst says the salad chain's plans to automate operations could help with margins. Keep in mind, it opened its first robotic kitchen this past May in Illinois. Mike? Christina, thank you. Thanks. MetaShares, meantime, pulling back slightly after getting a boost yesterday following the launch of its new Twitter rival called Threads, the app, which is designed for sharing real-time text updates up to 500 characters long, has already racked up over 30 million signups. That's according to Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Here to discuss what it all means for the broader social space is Alex Kantrowitz, Alex Kantrowitz excuse me, of Big Technology. He's also a CNBC contributor. Uh, Alex, uh, not every day, I guess, you get a, a big new entrant in this area. What's your, I guess, top-down take on what Meta is after here in terms of the size of the opportunity? I mean, Meta is huge. It's $125 billion in revenue. This is not necessarily a make-or-break business opportunity, but what is it doing in terms of, you know, grabbing a new piece of the audience? Absolutely right. There was always hesitance within Meta to try to go after the Twitter space because it just seems so small. Twitter's best year was 2021. It made $5 billion. Meta made over $100 billion last year. So you would say, okay, this is relatively small. I think what they're saying is with relatively little extra work, they could end up making a good deal of money because the thing, the thing with Twitter is it always struggled to monetize. It didn't have the ad system, it didn't have the optimization, it didn't have the targeting that Meta does. Meta is making about four times the amount per user than Snapchat, one of its clearest competitors. So if it could apply that magic onto a similar product that looks like Twitter and acts like Twitter, you know, maybe you're looking at $20 billion of incremental revenue a year if it goes according to plan. 
I suppose that um, if they can somehow, is there, if there's nothing about the text-based sharing of news and views, which is what Twitter is, that limits the revenue potential of, uh, of, of the ad market. I mean, I guess that's the question, isn't it? Is it the structure and the format of a Twitter-like product, or is it just Twitter didn't do it right? I think you do take a little ding when you're in the news business because you're going to have advertisers that are going to be like, I'd much rather be around fashion, I'd much rather be around shopping on Instagram and not around people yelling about the news on a place like Twitter. However, I think that's just a small percentage of the ding here. I think advertisers want to be on a place where ads work. I think Meta has shown that their ads can work regardless of context because they know the users so well. And if they can take that system and put it on to this new product, onto Threads, you could see advertisers go there. Maybe it's a little bit less than mm-hmm. the money they're making on Instagram, but I don't think that much less. Do you think a billion users is actually in sight as Zuckerberg has floated? So I, I don't think that's going to happen. No. But I'll tell you the path there. One of the interesting things I'm seeing with Threads is that what they've done is they've basically taken a Reels-like algorithm and applied it on a Twitter-like interface. Okay. What that means is there's no following tab there. It's just for you. It's just stuff the algorithm suggests. And the people you want to follow is just a signal. So what that does is, is it expands the universe of good posts you're going to see, similar to the way that TikTok does that in a way that Facebook couldn't. So they're transitioning the algorithm. They're making it look and work a little bit more like TikTok. If they get that right, you could see a much bigger user base than Twitter because the toughest thing with Twitter was building the, the follow graph, building the people that you want to interact with. If they can solve that, they have a really good path ahead. From a broader perspective, I just wonder what it all suggests, everything going on in this area, just about the way it's all fragmenting out. Uh, you know, there was the, TikTok took a, a big audience. We don't know if it was zero sum game, but obviously it takes attention. And so what you're seeing right now, it seems to be, you know, draining engagement from someplace, threads would be. Um, and what does it mean either for advertisers or for overall focus on social networks as a place where people are spending their time? Great point. So the first thing I'll say is that Meta right now is locked in the battle of its life with TikTok, right? It's struggled, it's marshaled all of its forces to try to win the battle for public content with TikTok. That means the introduction of Reels and putting it prominently in products like Instagram, right? So this might actually divert some focus that it needed to win this battle against TikTok. Now, you think about the actual Twitter-like product. You have Twitter, you have Blue Sky, you have Mastodon, you have Threads now, you have Notes from Substack. It's crazy. There's so many different products. And what that might do is basically... You know, what was nice about centralization, what was nice about Twitter is if news was breaking, if something was happening, it was there. Now, if you have five, six, seven different services, all of them use utility. And there's a chance they might just dissolve and and not be as important as they have been in the past. Yeah, uh, I I guess uh, you don't necessarily want to be surfing in real time from one to the other. Uh, Confusing enough. Thanks for uh, breaking it down for us, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Up next, a real estate reversal. BTIG's Jonathan Krinsky breaking down a big shift in the charts that he's looking at and how it could impact the sector in a major way. And later, getting bullish on Microsoft. That stock up more than 40% this year. And now one top Wall Street analyst upping his price target on the tech giant. He'll join us and make his bull case that is ahead. Closing bell will be right back. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. 
REITs have been the worst performing sector over the past year, with the group falling nearly 8%. But our next guest is seeing a turn in the charts and says real estate could be setting up to outperform. Joining us now is BTIG's Jonathan Krinsky. Jonathan, um, you know, obviously a bit contrarian. We have yields going up, the very well understood challenges to commercial real estate down the road. What are you seeing technically that gives you a sense that maybe uh, there's a trend change here? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Mike, uh, worst performing sector, not only over the last 12, but the last 18 months. So just, um, you know, pretty pretty poor performance there. Sentiment probably equally as poor in the space. Um, you know, and I think it's important to, to remember, first of all, how much sentiment can matter. So if you go back six months ago, uh, you know, where was sentiment on the tech sector? It was, it was pretty negative, right? So I think sentiment's the first backdrop. Um, but the second backdrop is the, you know, the the slowly but surely turning of the trend. And we're starting to break that 18-month downtrend in, in the REIT index. Um, you're getting back above all the moving averages. The 200-day is starting to flatten out. So I think you know, from a trend perspective, things are improving a bit. Sentiment is certainly there. Um, and then some of the names also have you know, extremely high short interest, um, in some cases 20 30% of the float. So um, you know, it doesn't take much to uh, to turn those names when um, you get any little bit of positive news. Um, you know, and then the last point is, you know, you mentioned, I think the problems in commercial real estate are well known, but um, parts of the REIT market, like apartments, for instance, are actually doing well today. Um, I think with the, you know, the new high of, of mortgage rates, uh, maybe that's pushing people again into, into the rental market. So a name like Avalon Bay is actually up 1% today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point. It's obviously not a monolithic sector. Is this a market in general where you feel as if it pays to look for a chance to, to play laggards, uh, to kind of look for catch-up opportunities, given that it's been such a bifurcated market, or is this a, an isolated opportunity? I think to some extent, um, you know, our call into the third quarter has been a, looking for a bit of mean reversion. I think, you know, we've ex- we're expecting and continue to expect some downside reversion, um, you know, in some of the growthier names, parts of the market. Uh, you know, I think it's been well documented that the NASDAQ has not had a down July since 2007. Um, and we're actually fading that seasonality in the NASDAQ. I think, you know, that's that's a part of the market that, you know, people are pretty much uh, fully, fully all on all aboard with. So, um, you know, I think there's there's bits and, and parts that you can fade on on the edges, but um, you know, I don't think you want to be you know dumpster diving across the board. But I think REITs are an opportunity where you know sentiments washed out, positioning's washed out, and they do have a bit of a defensive characteristic in, in times. I know there's the the interest rate part of it, but um, you know they also can can act as a defensive sector. So we kind of like that here. Sure. Um, more, uh, more specifically on today's action, um, it was pretty comprehensive downside uh, flush in the morning. It's kind of gotten some traction along the way. Uh, what's your read on how the markets behave today, how it fits into the general field position? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've uh, at last time I checked, we were about 90 percent downside volume on the NYC. If that holds, I think it would be the first 90 uh, percent downside day since March. So, you know, definitely a day to take note They, you know, they did bounce them off the morning lows, which you know, we continue to see that that dip buying mentality. Um, it does take a little while to kind of to break that, I would say. Um, obviously, interest rates are, are a factor with, you know, the psychological levels you mentioned um, you know, the two-year above 5%, the 10-year above 4%. So, um, you know, things do feel a little bit different. But, um, again, you know, to, to break the, you know, the kind of the buy-the-dip mentality, it'll probably take um, a little bit more than just this one-day shock. But ultimately, we do think, you know, S&P at least needs to pull back to that 4,200 breakout level. Um, you know, and that, you know, really to get there, you're going to need to see mega cap tech succumb, which we just talked about.
Right, for sure. Yeah, so it's certainly a few percent down from uh, from here. Uh, I know you've been working on this uh, thought that this year is stacking up as being almost the inverse to 2022 in terms of market cadence, uh, some of the seasonal stuff, I guess even investor expectations. Where does that place us right now? I know you're not basically saying it's a blueprint for the rest of the year, but where does it place us right here at the beginning of July? Yeah, it has been uncanny. Um, you know, again, you go back to the beginning of, of this year and the consensus seemed to be for a, a bit of a weak first half of the year and then a rally in the back half. Um, of course, the first half was kind of the opposite. And if you look, it has been almost an inverse of last year, where last year was weak right until um, June. Then you had that kind of waterfall move after the CPI report in June, uh, kind of culminated with the bottom just after the mid-month FOMC last June. You rallied a bit. Um, you chopped around a bit, and then you took off in July after the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. This year, what do we what do we have? We had almost the opposite, where you had a nice rally into um, into June. You had an acceleration uh, into the FOMC, kind of topped out. You've been chopping around, and then uh, we've seen a bit of weakness post the Fourth of July. So again, you know, we don't expect this to continue to track so closely, but I think it does speak to you know where sentiment was, where what the you know, what the consensus was for the market on January 1st of this year and where it is right now. And I think expectations, positioning um, have all come a long way in the last six months. And, you know, that, again, goes back to our thought to fade the NASDAQ seasonal strength Mm -hmm. that um, a lot of people continue to think will happen this year. Yeah, uh, good point. Good reminder that a lot of what's going on this year is really just taking back some of those deep losses in the growth year parts of the market uh, in 2022. Jonathan, great to catch up with you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. All right, up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the clothes. Christina Cartanevel is standing by with those. Hi again, Christina. Hi. Well, today's theme is about partnerships. JetBlue ending one and the NFL extending one. And that means some stocks are making some big moves on the news. Details next. Less than 19 minutes till the closing bell. Dow down about 360. The S&P off about uh, eight-tenths of 1%. Let's get back to Christina Partsonevelis for a look at the key stocks to watch. Hey, Christina. Well, let's talk about JetBlue. It wants to protect its almost $4 billion purchase of Spirit Airlines, even if that means ending its partnership with American Airlines after a judge ruled it was anti-competitive. JetBlue said it had informed American of its decision to terminate the three-year-old alliance so that there would be no objections to its merger with Spirit. But American plans to appeal the ruling. You're seeing JetBlue shares down about 7.5%, American down over 2%, Spirit up 1%. Let's switch gears. Shares of data and sports betting firm Genius Sports are soaring almost 28% right now after announcing a multi-year extension to its partnership with the NFL. That means Genius will remain the NFL's exclusive distributor of official play-by-play statistics in real time. Mike. Christina, thank you. Thanks. Last chance now to weigh in on our Twitter question. We asked, what do investors want to see in tomorrow's payrolls number? They wanted to beat expectations, a downside surprise, or in line with estimates. Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on Twitter. We'll bring you the results right after this break. Let's get the results of our Twitter question. We asked, what do investors want to see in tomorrow's payroll number? Well, the answer, at least for more than any other, is in line with expectations is what the market would crave. That would mean a uh, jobs print about 240,000 for June, give or take. Here's where we stand as we head into the final minutes of trade. You have the Dow down about 360 points, uh, as well as the S&P off uh, eight-tenths of 1%, about half of its uh, losses at the maximum in the morning. Up next, 314's Warren Pies tells us how he's navigating today's data and tomorrow's crucial jobs report. 
that and much more when we take you inside the market zone. And we've got a can't-miss interview coming up. Don't miss Amazon CEO Andy Jassy exclusively on Overtime. That is at 4 p.m. Eastern. Closing bell. We'll be right back. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Warren Pies of 314 Research is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Kate Rooney has the read on the retail investor playbook as the second half gets underway. Morgan Stanley's Keith Weiss, who just hiked his price target for Microsoft, he will tell us why. Welcome to you all, Warren. I'd uh, love to hear what you think the market setup is going into the jobs number tomorrow. Uh, clearly all year, you know, the market's been operating between the threat of a weaker economy and higher inflation. Things have gone more or less uh, the bull's direction on those fronts. Where are we now? Yeah, thank you for having me. I think that the story of the first half was really just lopsided positioning. Everybody came into the year expecting a recession and was positioned for it. And that has been unwound. And so, you know, I think uh, everything from the and the stock market rally has been a multiple expansion at this point. There's been it's been all P, no E. We enter the second half where we're basically from an earnings yield perspective uh, on the stock market. And that's just the inverse of the P.E. ratio expressed as a yield is below the two year note after today, below the one year note and below investment grade bonds. So I think at this point uh, we really need to see fundamentals come through and confirm the rally that we've had in the first half of the year. That's that's what we're looking for more than anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, what would you say to those who say, look, earnings, the earnings collapse really hasn't happened. You've had some year over year declines, but the forecasts are kind of flattening out, maybe going to hold up a little bit better. And we have a Fed, which has more to do, but it's doing it in smaller increments and more slowly. And the market seems to have been able to digest all that for now. Yeah, I mean, that's actually I mean, that's that's correct. That's, I think, a good read on on what we've seen so far this year. Uh, but I mean, we are entering this Q2 earnings uh, reporting season, and this is where we saw 2023 estimates begin to get marked down last year. So our theory at 314 is you get to about the midway point of a year, the market says, forget this year, we're on to the next year. So at this point, the market's going to start looking at 2024 estimates and the analysts are going to start looking at these in these reporting seasons and looking to either take their estimates up or bring them down like they did last year. The, the growth that's implied at this point in time is like eight to 9%. It's not very much. It lands you at like an 18 and a half PE multiple next year. And that's if we hit all of these growth estimates. So I don't think that just mere stabilization at this point in time of earnings, you need growth to power this market higher in my view. If you're not betting on that, then you're betting on some kind of epic bubble like COVID or the 2000 tech bubble. And so to to me, it's it's pretty clear, You know, we need to get earnings follow through. This is definitely a, a zone where you could expect some weakness. And that doesn't have to be top line. It could be due to margin pressure, which is 100% of what we saw in earnings markdowns last year was all margin pressure. Mm-hmm. Analysts baking in 12.9% on forward margins for 2024. That's still 140 basis points over the pre-COVID peak. So there's room for uh, margins to come down. And that 100 basis points of margin contraction in 2024 equals $20 off of EPS. So operating leverage yeah. gets negative really fast in this environment. Yeah, I know you're looking to feel like the uh, risk reward is skewed to the downside for the uh, S&P. Does the story change at all if you look below the surface of the index? Because that valuation, a lot of people will say, has really been amplified by those very largest stocks. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think that the AI, you have to set AI and that there's, it's interesting, when we came into May, there were, out of 11 sectors, only three were positive for the year. And that was actually coming into June. Coming into June, three sectors were positive, everything else was negative. So a very weird and skewed market. Obviously, there's an AI story. Those are the strongest balance sheets, the strongest companies in the world. We all get that. It's a high quality play. In my view, going into the second half of the year, I think you kind of, We've upped our equity uh, allocation heading into June as we saw the market broaden out a little bit. But we're not exactly buying into this, the bull thesis. So I think you still want to crowd, crowd into the quality stocks. Hopefully you can find pockets of quality outside of those AI uh, seven, eight tech stocks that really powered the market. Yep. All right. Uh, still plenty to prove for, uh, for this market. Warren, uh, good to speak with you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Kate Rooney uh, with a snapshot of what retail investors have been up to. Feels like they're feeling better about things. Yeah, a little bit, Mike. And Warren just mentioned it. There's been a lot of momentum behind AI, but we're starting to see a little bit of a rotation away from some of the red-hot artificial intelligence stocks into electric vehicle names. So some new data from Vanda Research shows a surge in inflows for the most popular EV maker, Tesla. That's consistently the most bought stock among individual investors, actually ahead of Apple. And a recent beat in Tesla deliveries appears to be the latest catalyst there. You've also got Rivian, another EV name. That saw about $30 million of inflows in the past week or so and a 20% spike just this week on Monday after it also beat on deliveries. Meanwhile, some of the shine is coming off of AI. So C3 AI had been the top pick. That really started back in March. You can see that there. The inflows have stalled a bit, though, in recent weeks. And Vanda highlights an increased risk in institutional investors coming in and shorting this name as a result. One exception, though, in that AI space is AMD. So the chipmaker did see an uptick in buys this week as well. There has been a lot of momentum and chasing momentum for some of these individual stocks. Vanda does note, though, some of the older and more conservative investors, uh, investors there also joining the rally. That's based on an uptick in some of the broad equity ETFs and mutual funds as well. So it's a little bit more broad-based, Mike. All right, feeling better. Uh, contrarians take note. We'll see if it's gotten overdone. Kate, thanks so much. Thanks, Keith, uh, lay out your case for Microsoft. You raised your price target today. You're seeing more than 20% further upside, even after the stock has certainly been, performed very well, trading now above a 30-forward uh, PE. Excellent. So thank you for having me. And generally, I agree with the, the earlier guest, Warren. Um, numbers have to move for the stocks to move higher. And we think Microsoft has real catalyst to moving uh, numbers higher. And it comes from their positioning in generative AI. Uh, what we did in our report today is we created a framework for understanding what types of revenues can come behind these generative AI products. And Microsoft wins in two ways. They have both the picks and shovels in terms of stuff like Azure OpenAI services, where companies are today building out the next generation of applications based on this generative AI technology. But then they also have uh, the applications themselves, the gold miners, if you will, um, stuff like Copilot for GitHub. We expect Copilot for Office 365 and Microsoft 365 to roll out shortly. With these catalysts on the horizon uh, driving new revenues, and I think upside in revenues to people's expectations, that's what's really going to take Microsoft on the next leg is moving estimates higher. And we moved our estimates higher as well. Yeah, how, how much of a, of a mover of the needle are those incremental revenues across its enterprise software area? It feels as if uh, people feel like it long term, this is going to be an important component, but how do you quantify it? 
Yeah, so there's different frameworks for uh, quantifying different parts of, of the equation. Uh, the first mover is likely to be the picks and shovels, if you will, right? That's Azure OpenAI Services, um, and that's going to come through an acceleration of the applications that people are building on top of that platform. You're already seeing today really good indications of an affinity towards Azure OpenAI Services. We recently ran a CIO survey. 27% of CIOs said they are looking to build on Azure OpenAI Services in the next 12 months. So that should be the near-term op opportunity. The framework for looking at applications is really an install base argument. Microsoft has some really large install bases. When we're talking about Office Commercial, there's close to 500 million Office Commercial users. So it doesn't take a lot of penetration to move the needle. We think these are going to be high value, uh, relatively high price point services. Uh, we expect about 20% penetration into that Office Commercial base over the next two years. And that can accrue on the application side of the equation. We, we have a base case of close to a $20 billion ad in terms of application revenues by FY25. That's Microsoft's fiscal year. All right, and all of that, uh, you're saying, uh, justifies the stock getting up to 4.15 a share, would be uh, above the $3 trillion market cap uh, level if we got there. Uh, Keith, thanks a lot. Appreciate you laying that out for us. Excellent, thanks for having me. Just about a minute left uh, in trading today. You have the Dow down about 360 points still. The uh, S&P 500 off three quarters of 1%, although that only takes the S&P back to where we traded essentially last Friday. Uh, we closed a little bit below here on June 29th. Financials have been a weak point. You do have those yields moving much higher, uh, taking another hit to bond portfolios. Some concerns about what that's going to mean for the banking sec sector, as well as creating some competition for deposits. The volatility index up above 15, not at an alarming level, but certainly braced for the potential for more, uh, more bumpiness as we get through the jobs number tomorrow. We're going to finish with not quite 90% downside volume on the New York Stock Exchange, so we have had a little bit of an intraday rally. Uh, subtraction in the broad index is heading into the payrolls number in the morning as the 10-year uh, the gets to 4%. That's going to do it for closing bell. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.